praise you for the work that he has done in salvation. And pray now that you'd open your word to our understanding as a church. We gather in this place because you've bid us to do so. You have called us to gather as your people to remember Christ as prophet, priest, and king. To remember his resurrection and to speak the words of truth from your word, to understand how to grow and mature as believers in the faith, I ask, Lord, that here we would recognize that we stand together as a witness to your saving grace. I pray that you deepen us in our understanding of that salvation, and for those who do not know Christ, that you would allow the words that are spoken here, the scriptures that are read, to be illumined by the Spirit of God, and that there would be life that dawns. Lord, no one here can save themselves. We cannot even contribute. But we praise you for the free salvation in Christ and pray that that would be exalted now among us and by your Spirit that Jesus would be seen as high and lifted up. It's in his name that we pray this. Amen. Please be seated. You imagine that I take a driving tour to view the old mansions on Summit Avenue in St. Paul, and I see one home that really impresses me. And I stop the car, I walk to the front door, and I knock on the door, and the owners come, and I inform them this, I want your house, give me your keys, I'm moving in Saturday. You think they'd say, yeah, sure, no problem, let us find the keys and we'll be on our way. Now they'd be calling the authorities to remove me from the premises and make sure that I never showed up at their door again. But what if I offered them $5 million? Cash, right here, right now. Would they take it? I mean, only if they planned on skipping the country, because people don't show up at your front door with that kind of cash that have come by it honestly. For a home to pass from one owner to another, we all understand the two parties must enter a contractual agreement. They need to sign a stack of legal documents that make it binding and describe what one is going to do and what the other is going to do and how they will relate to each other in the sale of this home. Or to change the picture, can a man walk up to a woman and say, I just decided you're my wife. Not if he wants to live very long. (laughs) No, marriage requires a binding covenantal agreement between a man and a woman that is attested by witnesses. Witnesses of their vows of fidelity to one another. There needs to be something of a formal description that I am committed to you and you to me. So we understand the place of contractual or covenantal agreements that bind two parties together. But what's mystifying is that there are many people walking this planet that think they can walk into the presence of God and just say, let me in. Give me the keys to the front door of your kingdom because I want in. And that that'll cover it. God makes it abundantly clear in His revealed Word that is not how it works. 
That's not how it works to go to the door and say, I want your house. That's not how it works to just look at someone and say, you're my mate. And that's not how it works with God. That we just tell him, let me in. Or maybe we come to the entrance of heaven's gate with vouchers of merit. I'm a good person. I helped a lot of people. Keep putting these into his hand, these these vouchers. I, I went to church. I gave money to debt reduction. I was baptized. No, we must understand that entrance into God's presence in eternity demands two things. First, you need an advocate. You need an advocate to plead your case, a mediator between you, the sinner, and God, the holy judge. One has to represent you. Secondly, you have to enter covenant with God on His terms. So there's an advocate and there's a covenant. And it's vital that we understand this. We may not know everything there is to know about purchasing a home or even how one gets married. But we know we've got to think about that in those terms. And so when we come to God, we need to understand the place of an advocate and a covenant. Through the millennia of redemption history, God has established several major covenants that express His terms and His promises by which people can enter into His presence. There are others, but certainly we know of the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. God covenants to bless Abraham, to give him the land of Israel. There is then further down the redemptive line the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai where the Mosaic law is established and Israel covenants with God and God covenants with Israel that this is the way to pursue God and to know Him by the keeping of the law. The law we just mentioned in Psalm 1 just a little bit earlier there that we delight in the law of the Lord. But it's interesting that with all the emphasis of the Old Testament upon the Old Covenant, there are prophetic references to a new covenant. This new covenant builds on the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic, the Davidic covenants, but it is now the way to escape God's wrath and enter a right relationship with Him. Hebrews chapter 7 Jesus is described as the great high priest. He's that advocate. He's the one who speaks for the sinner to God and whose sacrifice is sufficient to allow us into God's presence. But notice, just as we remember uh, this passage, chapter 7 and verse 23, as he speaks of that old covenant and the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, he says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. That is, Christ holds his Melchizedekian priesthood, not Levitical priesthood, permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We come to the Father through the Son, whoever lives to make intercession for us. He stands between as our mediator. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, this is Christ, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself the sinless sacrifice in behalf of the sinner. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, I have sworn this priest after the order of Melchizedek will reign at my right hand forever and ever. God swears on oath this will be the case. That came later than the law. And it appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. As we move then into chapter 8, we have the reference here again to the advocate, to this high priest who stands with us and for us in the payment of sin. But we also see that this high priest mediates a new covenant, a covenant that replaces the old covenant. We have the service, in, first of all, of this final high priest. Verse 1. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Find hope, believer. Those are beautiful words. Find hope. We have such a high priest. We don't earn one. We don't buy one, but this priest exists. This priest reigns. We have him. He is a willing advocate for his people before God's throne. Is that not relief? Jesus will stand before God's throne for us, advocating, interceding for us. We have such a high priest. He does not advocate as a dim-witted lawyer in a cheap suit pleading with the judge of the universe. Jesus, no, we see in verse 1, is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's a place of highest honor, a place of absolute authority. And he's seated. What does that mean? The Levitical priests didn't sit in the tabernacle when they were ministering there, when they were offering sacrifices, they stood But Jesus is seated. His work is done. The final sacrifice has been offered. It is finished. There is nothing else that can be done to save the sinner other than what Christ has already done. This priest is seated at the right hand of the majesty, at the right hand of God the Father. From his throne, Jesus is, verse 2, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That simply means that Jesus reigns from heaven's throne in God's presence, not on earth. Remember this true tent, he speaks of this true tent, which reflects the old tent. 
In contrast to the tabernacle Moses set up where God's presence resided behind the veil of the Holy of Holies. Today, as the Levitical priests serve the tabernacle under the Mosaic Covenant, so Jesus today is the final high priest who's entered into the presence of God, offering himself in the place of sinners. 4 verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. It's characteristic fashion of this author is to kind of give you this idea and just to leave it alone. He doesn't go there. He doesn't talk about what the sacrifice is. He'll pick that up in chapter 9. Kind of sowing the seed, piquing our attention teasing us with the idea, fleshing it out there in chapter 9. But he comes, this great high priest, this final high priest who is seated at the Father's right hand, he comes with sacrifice. Now, verse 4, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. That is, if Jesus was still living in Israel at the time, he would not be the high priest. Why? Because the law restricted all but the offspring of Levi to serve as priest, and Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. But chapter 7 establishes Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm 110 and verse 4. He is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. As Jesus' priesthood is superior to that of Moses, in like manner, the location of his ministry is superior. He's not in that tent on earth, but he is in eternity in the throne room of God, there ministering in behalf of his people. So the earthly tabernacle is is a representation of the greater, higher tabernacle above. I'm going to take a little sideline here. Some of you will be salivating. Others saying, "What? On, he's lost his way. What's going on? I'm going to come right back off this rabbit trail pretty quickly. But let me just say this. It's interesting. Biblical typology then, biblical typology runs not only horizontally through history, following type with anti-type. It also flows vertically following earthly shadow with heavenly substance. So there's a typological understanding that works through the Bible that God establishes a type that's fulfilled later down the road historically. We see here also earth to heaven. Shadow to heavenly substance. Now some running down these lines, think that what we find here is the influence of the philosopher Plato, who spoke of the ideals, that is everything on earth is a representation of something in heaven that's perfect. So you're sitting on imperfect chairs. I didn't have to tell you that. But you're sitting in imperfect chairs, but there's a perfect chair up there in the sky somewhere. But the difference is that Plato's understanding was only vertical. What we find here in Scripture is the horizontal connection of real history that also connects vertically to heaven's throne. That was the rabbit trail. We're back on the path. Verse 6. 
Verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The pattern from heaven now constructed in the tabernacle on earth. But, verse 6, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So on Mount Sinai, God is instructed by Moses how to construct this tabernacle that reflects the heavenly realm. Heaven is not less real than earth. If we even want to say it this way, heaven is more real than earth. The old covenant ritual system of animal sacrifice and priests representing sinners to God was only a shadow of what is now taking place with the great and final high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, interceding in God's very throne room. Notice here in verse 6 it says, but it is, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry. He is operating in this ministry as that great high priest. It is fully and permanently functioning. The exalted ministry in heaven of the final high priest is superior to the Mosaic priesthood and fulfills it, but the high priesthood of Christ also involves a different covenant. And here's where we must pay attention. The arrangement God has established for us to enter right relationship with Him replaces the Mosaic Covenant. Now, we got our context and we got their context. In their context, this was really right there in front of them because some of these readers were interested in going back under the Old Covenant. Less persecution, less hassle from others, more opportunities in life. People didn't take your property and get by with it. People didn't put you in prison. People didn't kill you. Not as much. And some were saying it might just be a lot easier to go back under that covenant with Israel and live in obedience to the law. After all, we're Jewish people. So that's their context, and what, is, what the author is saying in wave after wave after wave is, that is utterly foolish. Look at what Christ has done. Look at who He is. You have this great high priest who has replaced the old covenant system. Don't go back there. But what does it say to us? We're not probably tempted along those lines. We'll come back to that question later. But the author's burden is clear when it comes to his readers. But to us, it is also significant to recognize where we stand in salvation history. And while perhaps no one here is tempted to come back to the old covenant, it is important that we understand how we do relate to God. What is the new covenant? So along, all along, this was God's plan to replace that first covenant, that is the covenant with Israel, with the second. And so we have the salvation of the new covenant. We possess that today. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
I don't know. I, I don't know enough. I mean, people do know. I just don't know how much the Jewish rabbis focused on the newness of the new covenant. I, I, I know enough to know that how they perceived that was not in a right way, but probably not a whole lot of attention to the idea. But the author says, now think about it. There is a covenant that God has with Israel, and in the midst of that covenant, under that covenant, the prophet Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant. What's up with that? Where's that going? If, If he speaks of a new covenant, there's something significant to that. It indicates that the present covenant has some fault. It can be improved in some way. God established His covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai, and it was good, Romans chapter 8 and verse 12. But that covenant proved faulty in its effectiveness due to human frailty. Let me illustrate. There's a young man who seeks my counsel. He's struggling with pornography. Comes into my office, sits down, and we talk about it. And as I listen to his situation, I say this to him. This is what I want you to do. Just stop it. Don't ever look at anything like that again. Right here, right now, it's over. You belong to God. Act like it. Quit it. Is that going to work? Was it good counsel? There's nothing wrong with it. It would be wonderful if that actually is what happened with this one meeting. But will that counsel prove effective? It could, but it's very, very unlikely. Why? Not because the counsel is wrong, but my counsel will not help to set him free. The command will find little power with him because of the weakness of the flesh. So it was with Israel under the Mosaic law. Make no idols. Do not covet. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Honor your father and mother. Just quit it. Don't do it. The law was right. It was good. It was saying the right thing. These were things that should not be done. But the law had a fault. The fault was not a moral failing, but was rather the fault of the human of human flesh and desire. The law could say what was wrong, but it did not have in itself the capacity to bring about what was right. So, verse 8, he continues, for he finds fault with them when he says. He finds fault with them, that is, with could be with the words of the old covenant. But I think he's probably talking here about he finds fault with Israel. When he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So, Jeremiah 31, in context, Israel has failed to honor the old covenant. They have broken the law of God again and again and again. And it's in that context that God says not only obey my law, but he prophesies a new covenant in the future. When I establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The old covenant was fundamentally fundamentally tribal. 
and representative. In other words, it was directed to the entire community as one. And it was mediated by prophets and priests and kings who received a theocratic anointing of the Spirit to minister to the people of God. When the mediators failed, the nation suffered and the Spirit could even be withdrawn from those mediators. That was the Old Covenant. That's how it worked. It's in that context that Jeremiah prophesies a new covenant for the people of Israel. Verse 9, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That is, think of a, a loving father grabbing a child's hand and crossing the street. I took you out of Egypt by the hand. For, verse 9, they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. I brought them to Mount Sinai. I brought them out of Egypt. I established my covenant with them. But they didn't keep it. They broke my law. And so, I showed no concern for them. That doesn't mean he didn't love them. But it means the relationship was fractured. But this new covenant would not be like the Mosaic Covenant in this respect. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. still Jeremiah, God speaking through the prophet. I will make with them, the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. So this covenant with the house of Israel, also verse 8. I think it's important that we stop here and just ask the question, does this include Gentiles in the church? You see there in verse 8 that it's specifically for the house of Israel and Judah, and also in verse 10. Does this include Gentiles? I believe it does. The inclusion of Gentiles who would be grafted into the people of God was in Jeremiah's day somewhat a veiled mystery. There were hints at it, but there's no one that could put it all together. But I would say, first of all, that Gentile inclusion in the promises of Israel was anticipated in the Abrahamic covenant. It was through Abraham's offspring that all nations would be blessed. All nations. Genesis 12. In Galatians 3, 8-9, Paul declares that the Gentiles are included in the gospel prophesied in in the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12. So in one sense, Gentile inclusion in the New Covenant was assumed in the Old Testament until it was more pointedly revealed in the New Testament. So it it was assumed in the Old Testament until revealed in the New. That would be one line of argument, that I would say that Gentiles were understood to be included by God in this promise to Israel. Number two, I would argue that Jesus' death inaugurated the new covenant, as he explained at the Last Supper. And we know that his death was in the place of Gentiles, as well as in the place of Jewish believers. We could go on for a long time with that, and many books have been written. 
But what does participation in the new covenant involve? That's where what I think takes up our focus more significantly here today. First, what does God say? Verse 10. You see it there in the middle of verse 10. Here's this covenant that we need to understand of how to rightly relate to God and how we will enter into His presence. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. That's one. Second, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wasn't that true of Israel? Yes, absolutely so. But under the new covenant, God's word is internalized. Under the new covenant, every individual will know God through his revealed word. God's words will not be written on tablets of stone, but internalized, written on hearts of flesh. New covenant believers will love God's word, believe God's word, and feed on God's word. Again, the new covenant applies not to a nation generally, but it applies also to individuals, or it does apply to the individual. As verse 11 indicates, they will not need anyone to teach them. Now, that doesn't mean that there should be no teachers of the Bible in the church. That would be a a wrong conclusion, and some have drawn that conclusion, but by doing so, they just ignore Ephesians chapter 4, that the risen Christ gives to the church pastor-teachers. So there's an office that Christ gives to the church of teachers. He's certainly not saying, yeah, that office doesn't matter. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 13, Timothy is to devote himself to teaching in the assembly. So that's not the point. What is the point of verse 11? They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Everyone in the new covenant knows the Lord. They know the great high priest. There is a personal knowledge of Him that is saving. And so when they read or hear the Word of God, they will have insight into its meaning. There will be conviction. There will be growth that takes place in skillful living and holiness as they heed the Word of the Lord. We find another key feature of the New Covenant in verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is the central provision of the new covenant. The forgiveness of sins provided by the mediatorial sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The final sacrifice, the final priest, and forgiveness is completed. God is just and the justifier. The Old Testament never fully answered that question. How can a sinner be justified before God? The idea of faith, the idea of sacrifice were there, but never was the answer fully understood until the work of Christ. But now that that final sacrifice by the priest who is seated at the Father's right hand, now that that sacrifice has been made, I will remember their sins no more. Redemption has been won. Now when God said, what does God mean? I, I won't remember your sins anymore. It's not cognitive erasure. That he, he just, wow, it, it was up there for a while and now I've just lost it. God is omniscient. What it means is I won't remember them against you. That's possible again because of Jesus' sacrificial payment of the penalty. I'll tell you, I'd like to sit on that thought. To know that God will not remember my sins against me. 
there's a whole lot to remember. And the closer we get to the Lord and the further we walk down the line, the more we see our sin, not the less. And so the fact that God chooses under the new covenant because of the work of Christ to not remember my sins against me is more and more precious all the time. This is the beauty of the new covenant. Not a sacrifice again and again and again as we lay down an animal as if it could really take the place of a person again and again and again. But one sacrifice for all time and I will choose not to remember against you your sins forever. In speaking then of a new covenant, verse 13, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I think here he's speaking from Jeremiah's standpoint, not his own, not ours. Christ is ascended. The new covenant is inaugurated by his blood. But I think he's speaking here from Jeremiah's perspective. When Jeremiah spoke of this new covenant that was to come, it was clear that the old covenant was becoming obsolete. It was growing old. It was ready to vanish away. And now in Christ it has. Not because something was wrong with the old covenant. Not that the new covenant has corrected it. But the new covenant supersedes it and replaces it. So for them, how disastrous to return under that old covenant when they know Christ, the priest of Melchizedekian order, the one who is seated at the right hand of God. But what about us? What about us? It's unlikely there's a single person here tempted to live under the stipulations of the Old Covenant. The problem is a real one today in the land of Israel. It's a discouraging, realistic fact of missionary agencies that are sending young Bible-believing, gospel-preaching young people to Israel, how many of them turn over to follow the Jewish faith. This is ongoing. It's not an epidemic problem, but it's a significant problem. Because young people who really have not probably entered the new covenant go there and see the close family ties the way of life, the beauty of the ancient faith. And they say, I like that. That feels good, and particularly here in this land, it feels really good to be part of the team. So it's a, it's a real issue today on some level, just probably not in our church. But that problem aside, what does it mean then for us? I think first of all, I'm going to just add a few words of application here, but first of all, I think that it speaks of life together as a church. It has something to say to us, this fact that we are participants in a new covenant inaugurated by the death of Christ, one in which the law is written on our heart, His truth is written on our heart, we heed His word, we know Him, our sins are forgiven. This has implications to our life together. This is one of the reasons why Jesus teaches his church to practice church discipline. 
correctively. When someone chooses to live a life in disobedience to God's written word, when they stop evidencing tender-hearted submission to Scripture, showing no real grasp of its obvious meaning, the church must lovingly object. The church must at least question whether or not that person is a participant in the new covenant. Is the heart changed? Is there a love for the word? If we're in entrenched sin, we're not evidencing that. So when a professing New Covenant believer begins to live in a manner that does not match New Covenant behavior, the church must acknowledge this. Christ acknowledges it. We must. Secondly, so if the New Covenant commends church discipline, the New Covenant does not commend infant baptism. Participants in the Old Covenant were circumcised. That is, only the boys, because the point was family identity. It wasn't necessary for all. And brutal and unloving for girls. But many of those who were circumcised, and many of the children of the circumcised of Israel, were not regenerate. They did not know the Lord. His law was not written on their heart, and that was evidenced by the way that they lived and followed other gods. This happened time and time and time again. And Israel knew it, and Israel could do nothing to stop it. You can't know where a boy or his family is headed at day eight on circumcision day. But participants in the new covenant all know God. All of them have internalized His message of saving grace. All have received the forgiveness of sins through repentant faith in Jesus crucified and risen. This is what is new about the new covenant. God writes His law on the heart of the regenerate and all who enter this new covenant then know the Lord. So it was not only sufficient but utterly necessary for the faith of parents to operate in behalf of their children under the old covenant. Because no eight-day-old baby boy could choose circumcision and none of them would ever like it. But it is not sufficient or proper for parents to operate in behalf of their infants to participate in the sign of the new covenant people of God because no infant can know the Lord or respond to His word knowingly. No one can say of that infant The Word of God is written on his heart. That infant there is part of the people of God. She knows the Lord. That's the reality of the new covenant. That's what happens in the new covenant. And we can say that of no infant. All who are in the new covenant know the Lord. Most who were under the old covenant did not. Second, let's consider the significance to the trials of life that we face. Consider the trial that you are facing. Consider the trial that we face as a church right now. It is so important for us to stop here and to see the majesty, the transcendent glory of Christ's intercession at the Father's right hand. We cannot see that clearly enough. 
to know what He has accomplished, to know that He is there seated, to know that He is interceding in our behalf, to know that there at the throne of the majesty on high, the risen Christ says, those people are mine. I am their God. They are my people. And they will know me. Whatever trial you face, whatever heartache fills your soul right at this point, know that you have such a high, exalted priest. It's hard even to say. But I think we're, we're warranted in saying it. He intercedes for you. This King of kings and Lord of lords, this great high priest... And final prophet prays for us. And I would say then, thirdly, this passage has much to say for preparing to meet God. Let me kind of come back to where we started. You cannot go into God's presence in eternity and say, let me in. That's like going to someone's house and saying, give me your house. It does not work like that. You need an advocate. You need a high priest who can minister in your behalf. One is there. Let me say it this way. One is there. Have you thrown your repentant, dependent trust upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you not only know that Do you not only know that Jesus' death paid the penalty of your sin and purchased forgiveness of sins for his people, but are you trusting in that message? Have you thrown your life upon Christ, crucified and risen, taking your sin and paying the cost for you? Does the Holy Spirit witness with your spirit, yes, I am a child of God. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. I am in right covenant relationship with God. It would scare me almost to the verge of death to walk into the presence of that throne room. And yet, strangely, I come with confidence. I come with faith. He's my Savior. He speaks for me. He's my advocate. And he has written his law on my heart. I know his word is true. I have a tender heart toward that word. It is changing me. It is helping me to know him better. So when I stand at heaven's gate, figuratively speaking, it's not going to be about me and what I've done. It's going to be about Christ and what he's done. It's going to be about the new covenant that he initiated and the evidences of that new life in my heart that I love him, I love his word, and I say he is my only plea. Do you know the Lord that way? If you do not, I plead with you today Do what you are able to do. Only He can open your eyes, but come to Him and plead with Him for life and hope and faith and embrace this Savior. There's going to be a day, I guarantee it, I'm telling you what I really believe to the bottom of my toes. There's going to be a day when you meet God. You're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ 
I'll tell you, on that day, you don't want to go there and say, let me in because I want in. You want to say, he is my advocate. He is my great high priest. It's his sacrifice. It's his forgiveness that I plead. I've got no vouchers of good works. I just have Christ crucified, risen, my Savior. That's my plea. Father, we pray that this would be true of those within the sound of my voice here. We, we, we do not know your divine plan and purpose. We do not know so many things about how you lead and direct and point people to yourself, but I plead that you would bring all to a saving knowledge of Christ who are separated from him. I know that is your heart's desire and it is ours. We pray, Father, for those who know Christ as Savior, that as we relate to you and come to know you in increasing ways, that we would love your word, that it would be part of our very soul. That as you have put the law, your law in our minds and written it on our hearts, that we will say with rejoicing and gladness this day, you are our God, we are your people. We praise you for the forgiveness of sin and ask that you would just draw each of us to a knowledge of this great high priest who saves his people forever. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.